Welcome to Kessler Foundation Expert Interview Series. This episode, we met with Dr. George Reebok, our 2017 Estabrook Distinguished Research Lectureship recipient. Dr. Reebok is a professor in the Department of Mental Health at Bloomberg School of Public Health, John Hopkins University. Our hosts for this episode are Carolyn Murphy, Communications Manager, and Laura Viglione, Communications Specialist of Kessler Foundation. This episode was produced and edited by Joan Banks-Smith, also of Kessler Foundation. Let's listen in. The type of research that you do and how that relates to the research that we do here at, at Kessler Foundation. So I'm not sure how you'd like to start with that, maybe with the active study and the uh, processing speed uh, protocol that Nancy sure. Charavalotti is using yes. in her study, because I think that's a good example of you know, the relationship sure. between the, our lines of work. Sure. I uh, became involved in the active study in the mid-1990s, and uh, I had been doing some work out of graduate school with training older people on different cognitive tasks, but they were basically sort of small laboratory types of studies with small numbers of group, groups of older adults. And we had some success, but... Uh, as I mentioned in my lecture, there wasn't a lot of attention being paid in those days to this very early brain training research. Uh, people found it curious and interesting, but they didn't really attach too much importance to it. And so when ACTIVE came along in the mid-1990s, uh, I was uh, fortunate, along with uh, five other investigators, to be funded to do this multi-site trial. Uh, six different sites across the country uh, with a very large sample of older adults and to use interventions that have been proven to be effective under small-scale conditions, but it had never been tried on a large scale like a national clinical trial. And so I was uh, the developer of the memory training intervention for ACTIVE, and uh, then uh, there were two other interventions that were uh, incorporated into the active training. Uh, one was the uh, speed of processing intervention, which Carlene Ball had developed based on a series of successful studies on the impact of processing speed training, uh, particularly on abilities like driving ability. And then the third intervention was a so-called reasoning or problem-solving intervention that Sherry Willis uh, had developed and again had been demonstrated to be effective uh, but not at a, a large scale level. And so, what um, made ACTIVE so different from anything that had been done up to that point was not only the large sample size, over almost 3,000 older people, and uh, the fact that it was geographically uh, a diverse sample as well as an ethnically diverse sample, but also that we were targeting different cognitive skills uh, with the hope and the expectation that we would improve those skills. And by improving those skills in turn, then you would see improvement on important everyday life abilities that uh, kept people independent, kept them functioning well in society, and uh, led to uh, good quality of living. 
And so we were very interested to see if the training would translate into improvements in things like being able to manage your medications or to uh, drive a motor vehicle or to uh, prepare meals or to manage your finances. Uh, those are the kind of real-life activities that uh, we were uh, looking at as the primary outcome of the active trial. I'm sure you're familiar with the work that's been done here on cognitive reserve. Uh, so I'm curious as to the relationship between this research and that theory. Yeah, well, uh, you know, cognitive reserve is certainly an important uh, theory that um, uh, Jakob Stern and others have, um, you know, proposed to account for um, this kind of disconnect that we see between the amount of brain pathology or brain damage and the actual functioning that people are able to carry out. And it's not always a, you know, one-to-one kind of correspondence. And so the, the thought or the theory is that, uh, that uh, those who have more reserve uh, are able to draw on that reserve then to uh, continuing to function well longer. And so, in a sense, we think through this cognitive training that we've done that uh, we have helped maybe preserve the reserve <laughs> that people already have, build up through their educational experience or their occupational experience, or that we've perhaps even improved the reserve by uh, improving their their cognitive skills and have given them some uh, reserve uh, that they can draw on then when they start to experience cognitive decline that this can help offset uh, and maybe slow down some of that cognitive decline uh, later in life. What is your perspective on the... Um the potential for these types of uh, this type of these different types of cognitive training on clinical populations. Well, I think there is enormous potential there. I think that we are still in the very early stages of a lot of the work in cognitive training. It's only really been a few decades since we've really seriously started to developing. Uh, really rigorous training programs. Um, I think we still need to arrive at what I might call an engineering level understanding of cognitive training so that we really know how to design these programs and adapt them for different users. I think one of the problems of a lot of cognitive training in the past, uh, including training with clinical populations, is kind of this one-size-fits-all philosophy that uh, we can simply take a cognitive training program and expect people who present even with the same clinical uh, uh, you know, uh, symptoms or same clinical condition to benefit equally from the training. And, and you know, it really sort of turns out, I think, that one size fits nobody, that uh, we really need to be able to adapt these programs to different clinical populations. And I think... Uh, there's it's sort of uh, along the lines that we're seeing now with personalized medicine. You're trying to develop uh, medicines that are more tuned to you know people and their particular needs. So I think we're going to see much more of that in terms of training with with clinical populations. Uh, I think also that uh, we 
have um, still have a long way to go before we understand the mechanisms that may be driving a lot of the changes that we see. And so uh, we need much more research focusing on uh, underlying uh, mechanisms, not only neural mechanisms and physiological mechanisms, but also psychological mechanisms that underlie training effects like feelings of self-efficacy uh, about uh, whether or not I can do this training uh, with my clinical condition. Is this going to help me? Uh, and pay attention to factors like that. So I think we still have a long ways to go, but I think, you know, we have to keep reminding ourselves we're still in the early days of a lot of this work, and we don't want to overestimate the effects in the short run, which tends to be what we do anytime we have some new technology or program. We overestimate how much it's really going to improve uh, people's lives or, you know, people's skills, but then we underestimate the effects in the long run. So I think in the short run, we don't want to, we need solid evidence. We don't want to overestimate the effects. And, and certainly a lot of the hype you read about some of the brain training rehabilitation uh, may be erring toward that side of expecting too much, but we don't want to err on the other side of expecting too little in the long run. And I think it's very important that we keep our eyes to the sort of the distant horizon and say, well, 50 years from now, 100 years from now, what's this going to look like? And I think the potential is absolutely astounding uh, for clinical and non-clinical populations. Well, <clears throat> 50 to 100, 100 years out, um, I, I, I agree. I think that we're going to see tremendous advances in this area. We do get a lot of interest from people in the short term, however, who um, are interested in cognitive rehabilitation uh, therapy, who um, we get inquiries from all around the world, uh, we, uh, which, of course, we try to address in the short term as best we can with the tools that we have. Um, do you see any hope in the short term for Given the progress that's being made in the field for, say, insurance reimbursement for cognitive rehabilitation therapy? Yeah, I think that's a key question of, you know, who's going to reimburse you for doing one of these cognitive training programs? And uh, I think that given the lack of consistency in a lot of the results you see creates problems, particularly when it comes to insurance payments where, you know, there's evidence for some programs and some under certain conditions and not under other conditions. So I think that's, that's a big disconnect right now. Mm -hmm. I think we've got a lot of these programs out there, but uh, to show that one program works uh, is superior to all the other programs, it's hard to really show that. And so we need really, I think, good comparative effectiveness studies and trials, well-controlled trials, to, to really sort of compare head-to-head -head a lot of these, these uh, cognitive rehabilitation and cognitive training programs. So a ways to go in that area before we can expect that. Is it true that, you know, the younger that you start, the better your brain will be in the long term? Um, if they, if you start training when you're younger and you do happen to, um, you know, develop an impairment or a disease or have some type of traumatic brain injury, will you be better off having had that training and, 
Can you speak to anything like that? Sure, and I think that ties into the earlier question mm-hmm. with cognitive reserve, right. and it's something that we're increasingly focusing on younger and younger populations in our training. And, uh, you know, for example, with Alzheimer's disease, we know there's a long prodromal period for Alzheimer's disease, and there's maybe 20 years or more of incipient changes that are occurring that eventually uh, lead to the clinical presentation of Alzheimer's disease. But there are a lot of changes going on well before that time. And so we're very interested in identifying some of the early risk factors in young adulthood and middle age that predispose someone for a heightened risk of Alzheimer's disease. And certainly um, there is correlational and observational evidence to suggest that, you know, being very passive in your activities and not being very engaged socially or cognitively early on in life and not following a regular physical regimen and not having a proper diet, Uh, sleep, uh, not getting enough sleep, and sleep is a Uh, becoming a a very important variable in terms of cognitive training. We're actually looking at uh, sleep not only as some a factor that affects cognitive training, but as an outcome of cognitive training, that if you train people uh, through these programs, does it improve their sleep quality? And so there's, uh, and sleep is a malleable, you know, risk factor for cognitive decline. So it's a very appealing candidate in terms of one of the risk factors. So I think that, uh, you know, we need to start earlier. Uh, We need to be more intensive in our programming uh, rather than just the standard sort of six weeks of training and then you're done. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think it has to be more sustained and it. It has to focus on multiple risk factors that if it's done in isolation of, you know, uh, good health habits, good diet, um, exercise, things like that, uh, it's probably not going to be as effective in the long run than if it is done within sort of a whole context of lifestyle management and something that is really part of your lifespan and that uh, continues on as you go through your younger adult years on up through old age, that uh, the time to start thinking about cognitive training is not when you you reach your 65th birthday. It's uh, well before that time. And um, so I think there's a lot of opportunity to uh, introduce these programs much earlier and really have them become part of people's lives in a way that they're part of their routine and it's just part of their, their you know, good health uh, habits that this is, is part of what they do, particularly if they're engaged in very you know, uh, non-challenging occupations or live uh, a lifestyle that does not uh, promote a lot of uh, you know, active uh, you know, cognitive uh, kind of skills, that it's very important that uh, we, we start very early and get people intellectually engaged as well as socially and physically engaged very early on. Um, We had a conversation earlier about that, about the parallels between um, the cognitive fitness and physical fitness. If you wait till you're 65 to start, you know, a program of physical fitness and exercise, it's the same thing. It's not going to be as effective as most likely as... Yeah. You know, something that's Probably done earlier, 
Probably not, but there's no age that you reach where it's not going to be exactly. There may be less plasticity as we age, and there's some uh, some meta analyses have been done on cognitive training to suggest that uh, you know the older you are, the less benefit you get. But there's no point that you reach where you just don't realize any benefit, whether it's from physical training or cognitive training. That there's always that potential and room for improvement, uh, no matter how old you are. Well, that's probably the best takeaway of all. Um, is there anything you'd like to add, um, Dr. Reebok? Well, I'm very optimistic about this field. I, I'm really excited to um, be be part of the community of researchers and practitioners that are, is doing this work. I think it's terribly important work, and I think you know, as the... Uh, you know, the population ages here in our country and, and worldwide, it's, it's really critical uh, that we address some of these population issues around uh, uh, the aging of the population and the population's cognitive health. And I guess, you know, being in a public health school, I, I sort of think of a lot of these training effects at a public health level, that it's not just training individuals, uh, and, it's, and it's not just hoping that you're always going to find a big, big training gain. I, I'm not particularly bothered by small training gains. I think that when you, you take those gains and leverage them across the population, uh, even if we can improve people's cognitive uh, skills by a small amount, it may make a tremendous difference at a population level. It may make a tremendous difference at the individual level in terms of even delaying, let's say, the onset of Alzheimer's disease for a month or two months or six months, that it may not take much much to really sort of shift the balance in a positive direction in terms of the, the population's health. And with tools that are non-invasive, low yeah. cost and accessible, yeah. I, the potential is yeah. truly yeah. there. Yeah. Um, also, and can be used in combination with other modalities to enhance, you know, their outcomes. Very important. I just wanted to mention, um, along with our wildly successful podcast series, uh, something else that I've noted uh, noticed in uh, in our communications outreach. Uh, when we do releases, uh, we have a lot of work going on at Kessel Foundation. Everything from robotics bioengineering, cognition. And when we do releases on cognitive research, they uh, are vastly more popular among science health medical reporters than, say, robotics for spinal cord injury, which is not an uninteresting topic. However, I find that anything that relates to cognition has a huge is that's where the interest is in terms of uh, a lot of science professional uh, audiences and consumer audiences. So it's kind of interesting because when I I'll often ask people, including the board members, you know, like where I'll give them three press releases. What do you think the most popular one is? TEDx talks. We did three TEDx talks. Nancy Charavalotti on memory retraining, Dr. Nolan on robotic exoskeletons in stroke, and Dr. Barrett, our our director of stroke research on uh, prism adaptation therapy. 
Nancy Chiaravalati's is far above. But most people don't think that. They think, oh, it's got to be the robotics. No, no. I think that speaks to something that you brought up in your lecture, that um, what people care about um, is not, there's a disconnect between what um, medical professionals are actually talking to them about. That's right. And it's in its memory. Yeah. 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 That's a big concern. among uh, not only older people, but younger people as well. I mean, memory is so key to our ability to function, particularly in such a complex society that we live in. Mm-hmm. And the thought of, uh, of uh, losing some of that ability is a very troubling thought for most people. And it's, but yet it's a, you know, an issue that is not being addressed by many health practitioners. Uh, but yet, it is a high priority issue for. for it's it's most a people. core. It's, it's a core a, issue. A core issue. Um, and Nancy, in her yeah. TEDx talk, she addressed that. The memory is, it's really who we are. It's who we are. It's part of our identity. It's uh, there's a tremendous social power in memory. I mean, if we, you know, we don't want to uh, let uh, a grandparent uh, babysit a grandchild who's having serious memory issues. I mean, they they can't. If you have serious memory problems, you're not allowed to do a lot of things. You're not trusted. Uh, you know, who knows what's going to happen if uh, mm-hmm. you, know, you can't remember anything? So it's uh, there's tremendous yeah, social. And everybody has enough. I think what's interesting about this issue is that everybody has, you know, not everybody has experience with, like, say, paralysis or mm-hmm. or you know processing issues, but everybody's got a hint of what it's like not to remember something and the kind of difficulty, Mm -hmm. like, you know, forgetting where you, which lot you parked your car in. I mean, I hope I'm not revealing too much, but, but, you know, even like kind of minor things that happen, but everybody, everybody can experience. experience. It is, it is. That's a great, great, uh, great point. And, uh, you know, a lot of times when we have those lapses, it has no consequences or very few other than maybe some embarrassment. But a lot of times it has some very, very serious consequences like, you know, not remembering to turn off the stove or doing things like that. You said the prevalence of uh, Alzheimer is going up and it can triple. It could triple. By 2050, the projections are that the, there'll be well over 15 million cases here in our country. And that's just talking about diagnosed you know, Alzheimer's cases. And you know, most of those, uh, those people with Alzheimer's disease are living at home. So you know, in terms of the tremendous caregiving burden that it poses, uh, and and then you know how do you involve caregivers in you know memory support things like that? That's, well, Nancy uh, does care. Well, very, we have care, very, various types of caregiving, caregiving research yeah. going on at Kessler Foundation. Very, very important uh, aspect uh, because their self yeah. uh, caregiving is in this society is very it's fundamental to it's relied yeah. upon tremendously mm-hmm. um, uh, as a uh, basic component of care, yeah. which bring on which brings on other burdens. Yeah. For cognitive issues, right. caregivers, caregivers themselves in terms and, of cognitive stress, right, you have and to they, keep the caregivers the healthy so that they can provide right. the care. Yeah. That so they, in terms of cognitive training for caregivers, and maybe you know they can also be uh, helping to deliver cognitive training or cognitive enhancement to uh, the patient and alleviate some of the burden, because that's often the, the thing that caregivers really complain about. It's not necessarily a lot of the physical problems, things like that. It's often the cognitive issues that become a real, real burden. 
So I guess the growth in the, uh, that projected growth in Alzheimer's population, I mean, I guess that we have a growing older population, mm-hmm. with, like a lot of health problems that are associated with cognitive issues, like diabetes. Um, yeah. And mm-hmm. it's interesting, the prevalence of, cog- of Alzheimer's is actually, in, in some reports, coming down in developed countries because of uh, better education and uh, you know, better health practices and things like that, and treatment for like cardiac uh, conditions that uh, in countries that where you can afford that treatment, then you know it it may result. It looks like it may be resulting in an actual decline in the prevalence of Alzheimer's disease. But the absolute number of older people is growing, so it still you know mm-hmm. may project to a much larger uh, population of people with with Alzheimer's disease and. You know, what about the countries that are the non or the developing countries uh, where they're probably most ill prepared to actually deal with the uh, the care delivery uh, for the uh, for Alzheimer's patients and that actually you know kind of spoke to the next generation of cognitive training so yeah. the in-person or you know personalized some, care. The personalized mm-hmm. care and ways to do cognitive training other than um, via technology, I guess you can say, if there's ways to do that. Li- like a lifestyle right? Like a lifestyle uh, training. training of yeah. some sort. Yeah, I, th- I think, um, you know, we don't want to just think too narrowly about cognitive training. That's got to be something delivered via computer, but it, it's something that has to be embedded in much larger context terms of the person's lifestyle and sort of ways to deliver the training mm-hmm. and it could be a combination of given via computer versus and delivered you know in person that people get together and then go home and practice on their computer and come back together so there are different ways of configuring you know cognitive training so we don't want to limit it to one one mechanism uh, of delivery yeah, and one of the things we study here too, well, and I believe it's the MS population, the uh, exercise and cognition, which is really Dr. Genova's study, which is really interesting. Um, uh, yeah, benefits, memory benefits with exercise. Uh, we also have sleep, sleep research here too, which addresses what you raised before. Uh, a lot of issues with sleep in the MS population and the TBI population too. It's really uh, complicates can complicate recovery and coping with uh, some of these issues. So I think that's definitely something that needs to be looked at in in the whole picture of cognition and these populations. Do you have anything else that you would like to say? No, I don't think so. Thank you very much. No, thank Uh, you. I enjoyed participating. (laughs) Thank you. To learn more about our scientists and the research of Kessler Foundation, go to www.kesslerfoundation.org. That's www.kesslerfoundation.org.